If you would, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 21. We're going to, the main focus of this text is, is going to be the first 22 verses of chapter 22, but for context, we're going to begin back at verse 37 in chapter 21. I want to remind you uh, where we were last week. Paul is in the temple in Jerusalem per the request of James and the Jerusalem elders. And they have asked Paul to pay for the sacrifices of four men who have taken a vow. And uh, he's been asked to finish out this rite of purification with them. We talked about this last week, how it is problematic and how this suggestion by James and the Jerusalem elders put Paul in a very, just a lose-lose situation. But we saw that Paul does agree to go along with this plan, and near the end of this week-long process, uh, he's no longer able to remain incognito. He's recognized. Uh, He's recognized by... Certain Jews were told from Asia, and this would be Asia Minor. They're probably from the city of Ephesus. And these are not Jews who have converted to Christianity. These are Jews who have rejected Christ. These are the same types of folks who'd been giving him so much trouble in every town on his missionary journey, and they recognize him. And... They also recognize that they have him. He's in a vulnerable situation. And so they're going to capitalize. And so they begin to scream out accusations against Paul to everyone around them. they, They scream out first that this is the man teaching everyone everywhere to abandon and despise the laws and traditions of Moses. That's the first accusation. The second one is that this is the man who has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled the holy place. This is what they're yelling out, and this is what makes this scene blow up. It goes from a busy bustle to a violent riot in a matter of seconds. I was, I was watching uh, sometimes when I'm laying in bed before going to sleep, I'll watch like police body cam uh, footage on YouTube. And you can, you can see how in certain situations, how things can go from calm to dangerous in a matter of seconds. And that's what happens here. They seize Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and the gates are slammed shut behind him. Now, I I read something interesting here last week, and uh, it didn't get to it last week, so I will this week. One, One commentator highlighted the shutting of the door. And I, I don't want to over allegorize something. I know, I, I know we can we can do that. I, I heard this week someone talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan, and they over-allegorized everything. And, well, the innkeeper 
stood for this, and the donkey stands for this, and the money that's given stands for this. I, I, don't, I don't want to do that, but I just simply want to ask, in God's providence, could this slamming of the door be communicating something? Possibly, Paul, you must never go back in there again. You yourself are a holy or a temple of the Holy Spirit. Christ has offered one sacrifice once for all as an atonement for sin. And if you confess your sins, I'm faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This commentator says that when When this door is slamming shut, that's God in his providence saying, never go back in there again. And Paul never will. He will never go back into the temple. In fact, after he's arrested and he's sent on his way to Rome, he will never return to Jerusalem again. This door has been permanently closed. God does not allow him to finish this process of purification in the temple. And that reminds me that there are times, I'm sure you will all be able to relate, there are times when God intervenes and keeps us from doing something sinful that we want to do. Now, this isn't always the case. Uh, Sometimes he allows us to chase after our sin, maybe so that upon catching it, we'll discover that It didn't satisfy as much as it promised it would. He might allow us to catch our sin so that we'll have a better understanding of our need of a Savior. He might allow us to catch our sin so that we can, with true sincerity, say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. There are times he allows us to chase our sin, but there are other times. Times when I wanted to sin. I was prepared to sin, even though I knew it was wrong, and God wouldn't let me. Maybe there's a time that's happened in your life when you knew it was wrong. You were prepared to go ahead anyway, But God slammed the door so that you weren't able to commit that sin. (laughs) Praise God for the restraint he exercises in our lives. For restraining us from being what we are all capable of being. Remember the, the Lord's prayer. Father in heaven, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Every day we need bread. Every day we need forgiveness. And every day we need to be delivered and protected from the evil one. Our God will slam doors on occasions to keep us from temptation. Well, Paul is dragged out of the temple The door slammed behind him. He's taken out into the outermost portion of the temple, which was open to the public. 
where the kicking and beating begins. And this happens right inside of some Roman barracks, and I want to briefly talk about them. These barracks were named the Antonia Fortress. Uh, This fortress was built by Herod the Great, and it was financed by a man named Antony. Uh, You might have heard of Antony and Cleopatra. Antony is the one who finances this fortress, and it bears his name, the Antonia Fortress. And it was built right on the edge of the temple. Now, you think of downtown Corinth and the zero lot lines where you can build a house right up to the property line. Or some buildings might even touch. That's how it was with this fortress. It was as close to the temple grounds as it could possibly be. And there were towers up high where soldiers could look down out the windows into the temple grounds. So that should trouble arise, it could be spotted and swiftly dealt with. Now, the need for this is because this is a very unstable time. It's the year 57. And if you know church history, you'll know that something very important will happen in just 13 years. This temple will be completely destroyed. The foundation, everything reduced to rubble. The Jews would rebel against Rome. Rome would respond with a heavy hand and in 70 AD destroy this very same temple. That's what's coming, but what was happening previously were different uh, groups that were not happy with the Roman presence. There was one group called the Sicarii. They were Jewish fanatics. They were what today we would call terrorists, and they would target any Jew that displayed sympathies towards Gentiles. And this is who the Roman officer assumes Paul to be in verse 38, which we read last week, but we'll read again in a moment. In verse 38, the Roman officer says to Paul, I thought you were the Egyptian who stirred up a revolt. I I thought you were Sicarii. To which he learns, no, I'm a Jew from Tarsus. Well, this is why the the barracks and the soldiers are where they are, because of the political and religious unrest of this day. And so the Romans are very close by when they hear yelling coming from the temple, and they look out their window and they see a, a mob of people dragging one individual out of the temple, and then a scrum forms around him where they begin to kick and punch, and the soldiers are quickly deployed. They stop the beating and take Paul into custody. Paul is then granted the chance to address the crowd. He's granted this by the Roman tribune, a man by the name of Claudius Lucius, and we'll learn more about him next week. But this Roman officer is shocked to hear Paul speaking Perfect Greek. Now, lots of people spoke Greek, but apparently Paul spoke it very well, or his, his accent, something communicated to the officer that, hey, this isn't the Egyptian we're looking for. There must be a mistake. There must be some horrible misunderstanding in the temple. So go ahead, Paul, speak to them so that this whole thing can be cleared up. And what follows is Paul's defense. And here's how we're 
going to break it down. I've got a wonderful alliteration for you. Confidence, conversion, and commission. We'll see Paul's confidence in the flesh, his conversion to Christ, and his commission to the Gentiles. This is the defense that Paul is going to give. And by the way, this is the second of three times in the book of Acts that we'll hear Paul's conversion story. We hear it through Luke's eyes back in Acts 9. It is told here, and then Paul will tell it again before King Agrippa. I think that's Acts 26. It's coming. But what Paul is going to show to the people is that your problem is way bigger than just with me. Your problem isn't with me. Your problem is with the via salutis. Your problem is with the way of salvation, how God saves and who God saves. It's it's the gospel that Paul is going to defend, the free offer of forgiveness, apart from works of the law, to everyone who receives and rests on the Lord for salvation. That's what he's defending, and that's what we'll see in just a moment. But first, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, for revealing yourself to your people through it. Father, I pray that you would give your people eyes to see and ears to hear, that we may behold and see the righteous one and hear his voice. Through this word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, I'm starting in verse, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 21, verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? He said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he'd given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was great hush... He addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for this God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there And bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. 
As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? The Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen Your witness was being shed. I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this point, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. For he should not be allowed to live. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So we're going to look at the confidence, Paul's confidence in the flesh, Paul's conversion to Christ, and Paul's commission to the Gentiles. And we see this confidence in the flesh in verses 3 through 5. And you remember the accusation, Paul, you don't hold to the laws and traditions of Moses. Well, how's Paul going to address that accusation? He's going to do it by saying, I've held to the laws and traditions of Moses better than any one of you. Paul is going to give his pedigree and his credentials his resume, and show that he is a better Jew than any one of his accusers. He'll recount being born to Jewish parents in the city of Tarsus, but very early in life, being brought to Jerusalem to study 
under the feet of Gamaliel. You remember a long time ago, back when we were in Acts 5, we heard about Gamaliel, and Luke tells us that he was a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all people. Everyone respected this this Pharisee, Gamaliel, and Paul says, I was raised in this city and studied at his feet. And when I grew up, there was no one more zealous for the law than me. How did he show this? By ferociously persecuting the followers of Jesus of Nazareth. The way... He says, I hunted them down, I arrested them, I delivered both men and women over to imprisonment and death because of my great love and respect for the laws and traditions of Moses. And then he adds that, by the way, if you need any corroboration, just ask the high priest. Just ask the council of elders and they can testify to the truthfulness of my words because I received letters from them to go to Damascus and to find more of these Jesus followers so that they might be punished. I was one of the chief defenders of the law. I can assure you there is no one more who was more zealous than me. You know, this reminds me of something that Paul will write as a later date at a later date, to the Philippians. In Philippians 3, he'll, he'll say, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, he'll, he'll help us understand what that confidence in the flesh means. Later in that same passage, he will say, uh, A righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Right? That's what... Confidence in the flesh is my righteousness that comes from my personal obedience of the law. And he says, no one has more reason to boast than me. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. If anyone could be confident in their pedigree and their devotion and their accomplishments and their zeal, it is me. He is the superstar Jew. He's like the, the rich young ruler who comes up to Jesus and says, Good teacher, what must I do to earn eternal life? And Jesus says, You know the commandments, do them. And he says, Well, I've kept all of them from my youth, done it perfectly. Paul could relate. I've kept all the laws and traditions of Moses better than any one of you. And yet God, in his kind providence, will soon show Paul how blind he was to his own sin. And how ridiculous he was in his overestimation of his own righteousness. And this leads to the second part of the speech, which is his conversion to Christ. I mean, it really is. Like, this is, this is just an unbelievable, an unbelievable thing. 
the, the fact that this man could be going as convinced as possible in one direction and then on a road is knocked down and turned around and all of a sudden is heading in the exact opposite direction. There is no other explanation than this being an act of God. R.C. Sproul comments and says, It is a rare thing in the theological world for someone who militantly embraces a particular theological position for a number of years to suddenly switch and go to the other side of the aisle. Sproul says it usually takes some type of dramatic crisis to provoke such a change. And Paul tells us of that dramatic crisis in verses 6 through 16. He's got his orders to go to Damascus from the high priest, from the council of elders. And he says that as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, here's an important question to ask. How can Paul be persecuting Jesus? I mean, this moment on the Damascus Road comes some 27 years after the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. When the Damascus Road event takes place, the Lord Jesus is sitting on the throne of heaven. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So much so that the light of his glory was powerful enough to knock Paul to the ground. You notice that? Jesus doesn't trip Paul. He doesn't punch him and knock him to the ground. He doesn't push him. The mere Light reflecting from the majesty of the Son of God is enough to have Paul laying face down in the dust. Paul could not hurt Jesus. And yet Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And oh, I wish I could spend more time here and just go into the doctrine of the union that we have with Christ. We don't have time. Jesus would say this because to persecute the bride of Christ is to persecute Christ himself. The Lord Jesus identifies with his people and this should be a colossal encouragement to you. Dear Christian, there is a mysterious connection that you have to the Lord Jesus. You are in union with him. He identifies with you. To do something to you is to do something to him. In the same way he'll say in Matthew 25, which I mentioned earlier, that which you have not done for the least of these, you have not done for me. That's why the Lord Jesus can say, why are you persecuting me? Because you're persecuting my bride, the church. 
Paul reports, he's given orders to continue into Damascus. And there he will learn more of what the Lord has in store for him. You have this proud man being led into the city by hand because he can't see. And then comes Ananias. A devout man according to the law well spoken of by the Jews. Uh, This resident of Damascus came to Paul, stood beside him. Paul's vision is restored. And then Ananias says, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. Remember, Paul is still giving his defense. And what he's communicating in this narrative is that, hey, I didn't just decide to switch teams and join this new sect of Judaism. I gave my allegiance to Jesus Christ after he met me on the road and subdued me. I mean, what choice did I have? Paul isn't choosing to switch sides. And then there's this remarkable statement in verse 14. The God of our fathers appointed you, Paul, to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Moses and Elijah and David. He has appointed you to know what he requires. To see the righteous one. And to hear a voice from his mouth. When I read those words, the righteous one, I think of a passage I mentioned last week. Isaiah 53. It's the suffering servant passage. And in verse 11, we read about the righteous one. It says, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. So you see what's being told to Paul. And you see what he is relating to those in the temple. He's saying that my whole life, up to this point, I had a laser focus on my righteousness that came from my obedience to the law. And it drove everything I did until one day when I was knocked down and I was told, Paul, I'm going to show you what true righteousness actually is. It's not something that's earned through your obedience to the law. True righteousness is that which belongs to the righteous one who bears the iniquities of his people and makes many to be accounted righteous. And Paul says, I was like you, fathers and brothers, trusting in a righteousness that was all my own. But the God of our fathers mercifully humbled me and showed me the righteous one. And when compared to him, do you know what all my righteous deeds and zeal and obedience to the laws and traditions of Moses, do you know what what they are in compared to the righteous one? Dung, refuse, filthy rags. 
I was not blameless. I was a sinner, and I needed to be washed and to put my trust in the righteous one. Well, then comes the commission to the Gentiles. Verses 17 through 21, Paul recounts that he returns to Jerusalem, enters this same temple. He's there praying. You have an an illusion here, something that they would have recognized. that, That sounds like Isaiah praying in the temple. Well, that's what happens. I came was praying in the temple, fell into a trance, and the Lord spoke to me and said, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. Paul pushes back. Lord, I'm known here. They know my zeal for the law. They know how I was there at the death of Stephen and approved of his stoning. Surely this dramatic conversion will convince them. Surely I can help my own people. But he was told, no, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now what happens at this point? Verse 22, the people lose their minds. Up to this point, they'd they'd appreciated him speaking to them in Hebrew and hearing him talk about the the God of their fathers, but now they erupt in anger because they hear him say that the God of their fathers was sending him away to the Gentiles. And so they scream, away with this fellow. He should not be allowed to live. Now, why? Why? Why are they so hostile to this? This should be a warning to all of us. It was because of their pride. Because of their pride. Calvin mentions this. He says, this shows how frenzied their pride was. They had formed such a good opinion of themselves that they despised the whole world by comparison. And stood on their own dignity more than that of the law itself. As if all religion consisted in the superiority of Abraham's descendants over everyone else. That was their religion. That's why it made them so angry when he mentioned the Gentiles. We're the chosen people. We're the superior people. The rest of the world be damned. That's why they were so angry. And you see something of this at the end of Jonah, don't you? Where Jonah gets so upset and mourns over a plant that dies that's like a day old. But he couldn't care less that 120,000 Gentiles were saved from the wrath of God. This was their religion. I am better than the rest of the world because of who I am. It was unbelievable pride. These wicked, ungrateful people who'd been so blessed over the centuries, who'd been blessed more than every other nation. I mean, Paul talks about this in Romans 9. They are the Israelites 
To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. From from them is the Christ who is God over all. They had been blessed, but now they are presuming upon the generosity of God. He is not allowed to show favor to anyone else except them. The last thing I'm saying. Remember, they think their problem is with Paul, but this problem goes far deeper. Their issue is with how God saves and who God saves. How does God save? Through his son, Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. He is the only way because he is the only Savior. Believe in him. Trust in him. Receive and rest upon him alone for salvation because he is the righteous one who bore our iniquities and made many righteous. That is how God saves, but who does God save? Whomsoever he will. Remember what Jesus says to Nicodemus? The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. That is how God saves and who God saves. And who are we? Who are we to object? So whoever you are, whatever your background, whatever your credentials, whatever your resume, you can come. But you must only come through Christ. Let's pray. Father God, you have a room full of Gentiles here. A room of people who cannot claim this this pedigree that the Apostle Paul could claim. Lord, we praise you for opening the door to the Gentiles, for sending the Apostle Paul to the Gentiles, for establishing in in your wisdom and in your pleasure that people would be saved and brought into eternal relation and communion with you, not by their obedience to the works of the law, but through trusting in the works of the righteous one, Jesus Christ. Thank you for opening the door for people like us. We ask that you would continue to bring more and more and more in by your grace, that your churches would be full with with your people. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.